we're in a series called Essential Truth, where we're looking at 10 big ideas in theology. Uh, 10 big ideas that I think it's good for all of us to try to wrap our minds around and enliven our hearts with. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the doctrine of God. Last week, the doctrine of Scripture. And this morning, believe it or not, in 30 minutes, the doctrine of angels, demons, and Satan. We see these throughout our culture in art, greeting cards, Christmas ornaments, movies, TV shows, and more. I grew up in a home where my mama had these little ceramic angel kind of all around our house. They were little pudgy things, you know. Um, had a little funny smile on their face. Some of them had halos. Weren't really sure what to make of them, but they were dotted all around the home that I grew up in. What do we make of angels? Is that what they're like? Little pudgy things with wings and halos that sit on clouds and play harps? The Bible paints a much different picture, but it is a difficult picture to wrap our hands around, our minds around, our hearts around. We didn't always agree, don't always agree with Karl Barth's um, conclusions on theological matters, but he is regarded as one of the most famous, if not the giant, of theologians in the 20th century. And when he came to write on the doctrine of angels and demons and Satan, he regarded it as, quote, the most remarkable and difficult of all. The most remarkable and difficult of all. And because of it, it's sometimes tempting just to omit this, to neglect this, this week, I was looking at a handful of different resources that I have, and one of the resources for this particular series for me is the ESV Study Bible. I use a New American Standard translation of the Bible because my mama got me started on it such a long time ago, and I just love it. But the ESV is a wonderful translation of the Bible, and the ESV Study Bible is just fantastic, the best out there. In the back... They've got a section on systematic theology where they take up all of these topics except one. They've got a section on the doctrine of Scripture. They've got a section on the doctrine of God. They've got a section on the doctrine of man. They've got a section on the doctrine of sin. They've got a doctrine on the section of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the end times. But the doctrine of angels, demons, Satan, not a section. Historically, well, I think one of the reasons for this is that from beginning to end in the scriptures, angels are everywhere. And of course, we believe that Satan shows up as early as Genesis chapter 3, and his presence is weaved all throughout the scriptures until his demise in Revelation chapter 20. But for all of the texts that mention angels or mention demons or even mention Satan, 
it's almost in a tangential way. They never really deal with them. Don't do a lot to describe their nature. Don't give a whole lot in terms of who they are and what they do and how they work. And so I think that's why Bart and others have said that it's so very, very difficult to try and wrap our hands and heads and hearts around it. Historically, on the one hand, we can see preoccupation with angels and demons and Satan that can sometimes lead to speculations that are just wild and off the charts. On the other hand, we can see these as a relic of a pre-scientific and uncritical way of thinking. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And by that he means the demonic realm and Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. A materialist says it's just a, a scientific world that we live in. It's a materialistic world that we live in. There are no such thing as angels or demons or Satan. In his mind, the magician, on the other hand, that's the person who is overly preoccupied with these sorts of things. As hard as it is, and as easy as it might be to fall into one error or the other, it's our aim always to do what? Stick to the book. What is it that God has revealed to us about the angelic realm? Well, obviously, much can be said, and far more ought to be said than what we can do this morning. But here it goes. Angels. What they are not. And I'm going to say just one thing that they're not. Well, maybe two. They're not these pudgy little things that sit on clouds and play harps. But maybe more pressing for some of us is they are not humans who have died and then become angels. That may be your view of the afterlife, that God's children, when they die, become angels. And that's just not true. Uh, we'll talk more about what happens to you and to me when we die as we look into the doctrine of man and the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of end times. But just a note, you don't become an angel God will raise his people's bodies from the dead and be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory forever and forever. You're not going to sprout wings, be handed a halo and a harp, and given a cloud to hang out on for eternity. What they are. Wayne Grudem, wonderful theologian, created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. I like Millard Erickson's a little better. These are spiritual beings which God created higher than man, some of whom have remained obedient to God and carry out his will, and others of whom disobeyed, lost their holy condition, and now oppose and hinder his work. 
created spiritual beings, some of whom remained obedient to God and carry out his will. We might say the good angels. Others of whom disobeyed, lost their holy condition, and now oppose and hinder his work, Satan and the demonic realm. They are created. They haven't always existed. Ours is not a world where there is God who has eternally existed and Satan who has eternally existed and they have been in this eternal conflict for the ages. No. There is God. And for his wise purposes that go beyond our ability to understand, he has created the angelic realm and decreed that there would be a fall in that angelic realm and there would be some of the angels that would become disobedient to him and would oppose him for the ages. And that through his mysterious and providential will as well, they would tempt mankind into sin. They are created. Colossians 1 says that Jesus created all things, visible, invisible, and he uses a phrase here that most likely is a reference to the angelic realm. Jesus has created all things, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, authorities, rulers. Psalm 148, praise him all angels, praise him all of his hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. All of the angelic realm created by God, carrying out his wise and sovereign purposes for the ages. They have moral judgment. Again, some have remained obedient to the will of God and continue to serve him with joy. Others disobeyed. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, we're in Jude chapter, verse 6. Jude is one chapter long, so it's just Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So again, some obey. Some have sinned. These continue to carry out his will with joy. And these oppose God and oppose the people of God and oppose the word of God and the gospel of God. They apparently have high intelligence. They sing praises to our God. They, throughout biblical history, speak to people. They are without physical bodies. They are called spirits in multiple places in the Bible. One in particular, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. I was going to have you turn there, but just listen. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author is taking pains to show the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the angelic realm. We're not sure, but apparently his readers had a fascination with the angelic realm. And maybe we're 
exalting the angelic realm to a place they should not have. And so the author is at pains to show that Christ is greater, supreme. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? None. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. God has not said that to any of the angels, though he said it to his son. And when God brings Christ into the world again, he says, and let the angels of God worship him. So the angels are going to be worshiping the son of God when he returns. And the angels, he said, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It's a quote from Psalm 104 that apparently angels are mere servants of God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The author is, is equating all of these Old Testament texts about God with the Son of God. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Again, none. And then he closes, are they, meaning the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. We'll come back to that, but the point, are they not all ministering spirits? These are created beings, high intelligent, moral judgment, but they're spiritual beings. They do not have physical bodies. In the Old Testament, Balaam had to be given the ability to see the angel that was standing right in front of him. Elijah's servant, who thought he was in a whole lot of trouble, and Elisha prayed that God would open the servant's eyes, and he did, and he saw, surrounded by the Lord's hosts. And of course, the shepherds, in Luke chapter 2, the angels appeared to them and sang of the birth of Jesus. Throughout the scripture, they're called a number of different things, not just spirits or angels, but on occasion, the sons of God, holy ones, watchers, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, powers. Again, they're all over the Bible. There's some creatures that we read about that sometimes we wonder, are these angels or are they something else? And we're not exactly sure. But we know that they, whatever they are, they are created by God for his grand and glorious purposes. On the one we might note the cherubim. You remember the cherubim in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and are cast out of the garden and God places a cherubim there in the garden to guard it with a flaming sword. They show up time and time again in the scriptures. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim. Who are these that fly about the presence of God 
with six wings. Isaiah says, with two they cover their eyes, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. And they do not stop. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4, we read about the living creatures that surround the throne of the Almighty. Most likely, these are different kinds of angels. Fascinating stuff, huh? The good angels, much could be said, but one thing about them is that they worship God. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, you his angels. Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. What a vision. Into the very throne room, of the Almighty God and the Lamb. And there around the throne, a myriad of angels singing his praise. And as we just noted at the birth of Jesus, in Luke 2, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So they worship God. They also serve the people of God. In psalm 91, you may be most familiar with this psalm because it was the one that Satan misquoted to Jesus in the temptation. But this is a psalm about God's wonderful care for his people. Psalm 91, for he, God, will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. We couple that one with what we just read in Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Brothers and sisters, he will give his angels charge concerning you. And they are ministering spirits sent out by God to render service to you and to me. Wow. 
One author said, when we are suddenly delivered from a danger or distress, we might surmise that angels have been sent by God to help us. It was the angel who shut the mouths of the lions for Daniel. It was angels who delivered the apostles from prison. It was angels who ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. I think maybe the way we're meant to understand this is that God's care and his provision for you and me in ways we sometimes see and in 10,000 ways we don't see is apparently mediated to us, at least sometimes, by these angels created by God to do his will. God will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands. These are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 believed that he, the other apostles, and I think by, we might push it even to all of us who are nothings that God has saved to serve him, he said, we are a spectacle to the world and to angels. They see us. They ponder us. 1 Corinthians 11 seems to indicate that they very well may be right here as the people of God gather to worship here. Paul would say to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. God is watching. Christ is watching. Timothy, God's chosen angels are watching. You know in 1 Peter 1, that they are baffled at the grace of God that has come to sinners like you and me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, things into which angels long to look. Amazing stuff. But of course, there are those who sinned, who disobeyed God, who fell from their place of favor. And they have since been opposing God and due to this day. Chief among those fallen angels apparently is Satan or the devil. He has many different names in the scriptures, the devil, the tempter, the enemy, the evil one, the adversary, the deceiver, the father of lies and more. And his rebellion along with a host of others continues as they oppose God and the people of God even to this day. Christian theology has always taught that for the child of God 
seeking to worship God and love God and trust God and obey God and serve God, that it's always been a fight. This process of becoming more and more like Jesus and putting our sin to death and putting on righteousness, it's always been a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a very alluring place that would draw us away from seeing Christ as the primary goal of our lives. It's an alluring world. And our flesh, fallen in sin, which we will talk about in weeks to come, we might say needs no help to sin. The pride that is latent, the anger, the lust, the covetousness, But it's not only the alluring world and what we might say is our intense flesh, but also a busy devil who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, the Apostle Peter said. He hates God. I was pondering this. We we talk about our five values around here, things that we hope shape everything about us, the glory of God. The gospel of God, the word of God, the people of God, the mission of God. Satan is opposed to all of them. He's diametrically opposed to the glory of God. He is opposed to the gospel of God. This good news that in Jesus Christ we can be saved, forgiven. He hates it. And would do all that he could to keep people from it. Even Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he has, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not come to see the glory that is Christ in the gospel. So he's opposed to the glory of God. He's opposed to the gospel of God. He's opposed to the word of God. I mean, from the very beginning in Genesis 3, indeed has God said, It's calling into question the veracity and the goodness and the trustworthiness of the Word of God. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's opposed to the glory of God. He's opposed to the gospel of God. He's opposed to the Word of God. He's opposed to the people of God. He hates you. He hates me. And he is seeking someone to devour. Paul in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Man. And he opposes the mission of God. How distracted does he have you and me from the mission? Friends, as we close, maybe a handful of things here. Number one, let's praise God for his care and his protection 
often mediated to us by the angelic realm. I am not suggesting in one whit that you and I pray to angels, that we seek angels, that we give thanks to angels. But we can give thanks to God who apparently gives his angels charge to protect and provide these ministering spirits sent out to render service. We won't see it. We might not know it, but by faith in the word of God, we might just say, oh God, thank you so much. Your word apparently teaches that there's an angelic realm and that they do your bidding unbelievably for my sake. Thank you. There's a host of angels, ministering spirits. They're powerful in their unseen that God sends to meet our needs. Secondly, we, we might ponder one of their chief roles. And that seems to be the continual praise of God. They worship God. Some of them apparently around the throne continuously. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what might that, what example that might be for you and me? Who so infrequently praise God. And when we do, so often, so half-heartedly. Might they become an example in that regard for us? And finally and quickly. Again, Satan and the demonic realm form one of the three great obstacles to our worship, trust, obedience, and joy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So I think we would be wise not to give them too much credit. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, you made you do it. Our struggle is not only against this, but the world, the flesh, and the devil uses what he can to tempt and deceive and the like. But let's not make him more than he is. But let's not forget about them either. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood only, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And go forth as a soldier with tenacity, but with truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith and, and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and prayer. So we stand strong in the strength of the Lord. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His craft, uh, his power, oh, I forget Lo, his doom is sure. And that's my last point. Let's look forward to the day 
when the final death blow shall be delivered. Defeated at the cross. He's a dead man walking. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we don't think much about these things. But thank you for your great care for, towards us, for us. Thank you for these angelic beings who worship you, who carry out your will, who even minister to us in ways we'll never know. God, help us be on the alert, sober-minded, knowing that our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Help us not to be so caught up in the spirit of our age that we don't see and sense and believe in these other realities. And in our struggle to trust and obey, to live for the glory of God, for the welfare of others. Help us to stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. And we will pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.